First Peter Bible Study, Part 8, What Christians Are, Part 2. For lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we mentioned last week, this passage is what I believe to be the central message of 1 Peter. It is the pericope that helps us to understand all of the epistle of 1 Peter. Without it, we're kind of left with some encouragements and then some commands, and that's about it. When I was going through Bible college, I remember they asked me how to characterize the book of Ephesians. How do you structure it? How is it uh, put out into thought? How do you summarize it? And when it came to the book of Ephesians, I said, well, the first three chapters of Ephesians are what God has done for us. The second three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are what we do in response to being saved. Thus is the book of Ephesians. <laughs> That's the whole thing. But Ephesians is kind of notorious for having that difficulty in structuring and laying out thesis and line by line and getting it into a cohesive message. For 1 Peter, we don't have that difficulty because we have chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, which act as something of a hermeneutic key for the rest of the epistle. And it gets even deeper when we look at the Old Testament references in verses 6 through 8, which we will be covering today. In verse 6, St. Peter says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now the full passage referred to in Isaiah's 28th chapter, that's part of a full-throated condemnation of Israel and Judah. First against Ephraim's drunken arrogance, uh, the prophet says, all right, God says this, you are going down. The only people worth even teaching among you is like the babies, because none of you get it. 
you're always majoring in the minors and you're not looking at the God who sits enthroned and how to follow him. You don't care about trusting in him. All right, you are being extinguished. But for the kingdom of Judah, there's a different message. And St. Peter comes at this with the Septuagint translation, or at least that's the closest thing to the translation he employs. Let's go ahead and hear it from the Septuagint. Therefore hear ye the word of the Lord, ye afflicted men, and ye princes of this people that is in Jerusalem. Because ye have said, we have made a covenant with Hades, and agreements with death, if the rushing storm should pass, it shall not come to us. We have made falsehood our hope, and by falsehood shall we be protected. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, even the Lord, Behold, I lay for the foundation of Sion a costly stone, a choice, a cornerstone, a precious stone for its foundation. And he that believes on him shall by no means be ashamed. And I will cause judgment to be for hope, and my compassion shall be for just measures. And ye that trust vainly in falsehood shall fall. For the storm shall by no means pass by you, except it also take away your covenant of death, and your trust in Hades shall by no means stand. If the rushing storm should come upon you, ye shall be beaten down by it. Whenever it shall pass by, it shall take you. Morning by morning it shall pass by in the day, and in the night there shall be an evil hope. Learn to hear, ye that are distressed. We cannot fight, but we ourselves too weak for you to be gathered. The Lord shall rise up as a mountain of ungodly men, and shall be in the valley of Gabayon. He shall perform his works with wrath, even a work of bitterness, and his wrath shall deal strangely, and his destruction shall be strange. Therefore do not ye rejoice, neither let your bands be made strong. For I have heard of works finished and cut short by the Lord of hosts, which he will execute upon all the earth. What does all of this mean? Well, the children of Judah had made this covenant with death and Hades, and God says, okay, I'm going to cast you down and humiliate you. Pretty simple, right? You don't trust in me. All right, if you're going to trust in something false that's going to lead to death, all right, you're going to be broken down, you're going to be humiliated and ultimately destroyed if you do not turn around. That means that there is a promise of shame for those who do not believe in the cornerstone, Christ, whom our Heavenly Father sent. St. Peter explains when he says, So the honor is for you who believe, that the opposite is also true. If there's a promise of shame for those who do not trust in this cornerstone, then when we say, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, then there is a promise of honor instead. And so if God himself is the one casting non-believers to humiliation and shame, then he is also the one honoring the Christian. St. Peter here is defining the Christian not only in accordance with the position God puts him in, but also defining the Christian in opposition to the non-believer. The Christian receives honor from God the non-believer receives humiliation. And thus he continues, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this comes from Psalm 118, verse 22. He connects that in with what Isaiah says later on. And let's read from verses 17 through 24 of Psalm 118. 
I shall not die, but I shall live, and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So the psalm in first person is recounting a prophecy that Christ undergoes severe discipline. That is, going to the cross and dying for us. But he is not given over to the power of death because he rises again. Those that are the builders reject him by handing him over to the authorities to be killed, but on account of his resurrection and his ascension to the throne, he is now the cornerstone. So ironically, those that had our Lord Christ crucified, they accidentally fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah 28. That which sets the standard and upon which everything else is built. Our Lord Christ, he is now that cornerstone. So as he did with calling Christ the living stone in verses 4 and 5, when St. Peter applies Psalm 118 verse 22 to Christ, St. Peter, whose name means stone or card from the stone, he denies being the rock on which the church is built. That title properly belongs to Jesus and the confession that he is the Christ. We need to keep this in mind. Our Roman Catholic friends will occasionally bring up Matthew 16, verse 18, and then unfortunately they will forget, or they've never been taught, what St. Peter himself says. Jesus is that cornerstone. What is a cornerstone, by the way? Well, it's a foundation stone. When a building is being made, the stonemasons or the brickmasons, the people building the thing, put in a cornerstone, and that's the reference point for everything else in the building. It's also called a foundation stone. You have this brick, it's a corner, it's a square or something, and then as you place other things on top of it, you see that stone and you reference it for the conformity of the entire building. You build a building on the cornerstone. It is the foundation, strictly speaking. Maybe it's not the ground, but it's the foundation of all of the plans of the building, everything. So out of the rejection of Christ by his... So out of the rejection of Christ by the children of Judah, he became the edifice of the church with our Savior being the one from whom all is modeled and set straight. He becomes the standard, which is why in verse 5, St. Peter says we are like living stones. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Now he continues with verse 8, A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. St. Peter here citing Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. It's part of a broader passage, verses 11 through 15, which reads like this. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, 
and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, let him be your fear and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now when St. Peter refers to Jesus as the stone of stumbling, we need to recognize that he is identifying Jesus Christ as God. In Isaiah's passage, God is saying that he himself will be that stone of offense and that rock of stumbling. This is a direct statement that it only applies to Christ, therefore making him divine. Think about that next time you hear somebody say, Oh, well, Christians and Jews and Muslims all worship the same God. No, we don't. If you reject Jesus as God, you are rejecting God himself. There is no same God, different religion. There is no elephant allegory to be uh, had here. You know the old adage, right? A bunch of blind guys feeling up an elephant. Right? They're, they're putting their hands on an elephant. And they all say, ah, well, God is like this. So one of them feels the elephant's trunk and says, God must be like a snake. Another blind man feels the foot and says, ah, God must be like a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros. And none of them can tell what their God is like, but they all know that this is the same God. It's not like that, as scripture presents it. St. Peter says, no, if you do not believe in Jesus, you are not believing in the same God as me. Period. You're worshiping some other God if you don't believe in Jesus. I don't care if you call it Abrahamic or not. Not only are you worshiping a false god, you're not even in the same league as us. You're not even in the same ballpark, for crying out loud. Christians worship Jesus Christ because he is God. And if somebody from some other religion cannot confess that same thing, they're not worshiping the same god. Period. So, with that, Christ is presented as the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense. If someone rejects Jesus, then they stumble, fall, and perish, according to their own offense that they take, that this man crucified for our sins and risen for our justification should be divine. But here we also see St. Peter saying, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You might have a Reformed friend that when they read that, they go, Aha! That's double predestination. This is talking about election. From eternity past, God decreed that these men would not believe, and therefore they shall perish. Duh, that's their destiny. But is that really what St. Peter is saying? That God destined these men to disobey the word as though he forced them to sin? I wouldn't say so. In context, he's bringing up prophecy. St. Peter's closest referent is the prophecies that he's bringing up from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8. 
whenever we want to figure out a verse, right? This is proper hermeneutics. Whenever you see a verse that you don't quite understand its meaning, before you go to cross-references with other verses, before you try to fit it into some nice, neat, tidy system of theology, before you look into those other explanations, you want to ask yourself, do the verses preceding this or immediately coming after this verse explain it? And St. Peter gives us prophecy saying that God prophesied the future regarding the stone of stumbling, the cornerstone rejected by the builders. He doesn't leave us ashamed if we trust in him. Look at all of these prophecies. If it's prophesied, then those men rejecting Christ, well, they're destined to do so. They are destined to disobey the word. That doesn't mean that there was a decree from eternity past that these men would be forced to disobey the word. To the contrary, God was looking at the future as well as the present in Isaiah's day and saying, this is what they will do. This is what they're going to choose to do. And according to that, whenever you're dealing with the future, there can be such thing as destiny. Is that going to fit into our nice, neat little theological systems out there like Calvinism? No. Does it necessarily destroy Calvinist doctrine? Not quite, although as a Lutheran, I vehemently reject double predestination. Nonetheless, election and predestination are almost universally brought up in terms of gospel, not law. In terms of salvation, not damnation. And here is yet another example where a passage where if you're thinking about double predestination, maybe you're going to apply to it, but textually it's referring to a specific prophecy made at a specific time. And those who reject Christ fulfilling that prophecy, stumbling over the stone of stumbling, they're fulfilling it right then and there. And that means that that apl prophecy applied to them. They were destined to do so. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they won't change. By God's grace and his mercy, let's hope that these people who stumble and fall, maybe some of them will be brought back up and they'll start obeying the word, following that invitation. But I digress. The most exciting verses that help uh, put a cap on the rest of this passage will be discussed next week, and it really helps us to understand the rest of 1 Peter from there. Remember, he does not just define the Christian in opposition to non-Christians. He also defines us in accordance with how God sees us, what he does for us. And there's a lot to rejoice in there. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.